There's a, uh, there's a quote from a scholar friend, a scholar uh, that I read a lot uh, that has been pouring in my head just like almost every day since I read it again recently. And, and, it, and it says, there is nothing wrong with the church. <laughs> he doesn't stop there because there's a lot wrong in the church. There's nothing wrong with the church that discipleship cannot cure. If we're really serious about becoming like Christ, as confusing as that might be to some of us at times, where we're like, I don't, what does that even mean for me? As confusing and as difficult as that might be at times, if we just dedicate ourselves to doing that, to becoming like Jesus, to figuring out, to asking Jesus, like in any given situation, what do, what do I do? What do you want me to do? How can I go to the Word, to the Scriptures, and read and have you inform my doing to be in keeping and in step with your doing? How can, can we do that? I, I, really, I, I have a hard time sometimes believing that, but I know it is true if we were just serious. It's true in my life when I've been serious about being one of Jesus' disciples and really learning and really asking him to show me and to direct me when I've been humble enough to do that, he, he does it. Like, he really does. He does. How many of you have heard of, of, of an epiphany? It's a season during the church, too, and we're kind of in it, but epiphany. Um, what, how would you define an epiphany? Uh-huh. Yeah, like, whoa. Like, all of a sudden, like, in general terminologies, it's like, this idea is just upon you. You're like, a light bulb goes on. Perfect. Yeah, it's like, whoa, this is incredible. I just had an epiphany. Hey, everybody. Have you had an epiphany in your life before? Yeah, probably all of you have at some point in time. I think you probably know it if you have one. <laughs> it's kind of the idea. So what about, <clears throat> what about an angelophany? Have you ever heard of an angelophany? <laughs> So an epiphany is like when an idea appears, or a thought occurs. An angelophany is when an angel appears. <laughs> Seriously, like it's a real thing. So like, you know, the shepherds out watching over their flocks by night, suddenly, uh, ultimately ends up a whole heavenly host of angels. It was many, epif- it was many angelophanies at the same time. So what about, uh, so if an, if an angelophany is when angels appear, what about a theophany? Have you heard of a theophany? A theophany. It's when uh, the appears, right? A theophany. I know it's really bad. A, the- a theophany, right? That's when God himself appears. A theophany is when God himself appears. And, you know, when God appears, he doesn't, like, mess around. You know, I mean, he's, like, going to do something usually. He's not, well, I guess maybe he's like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> but, like, he's got a point. And when we see theophanies within the scriptures, like God is moving. He is up to something. Because we know that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere, right? He is, there is nowhere we can go to escape God's presence. He is everywhere. But then we have these theophanies when God appears. Oh, my goodness. And some people are like, oh, dear Lord, I, 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 I can't even be here. I have to run as fast as I can because I can't stand in the presence of God. Hmm. 
The text we're going to look at tonight is it's related to theophany. There's something else God does in theophanies. He, he doesn't just show up, and he doesn't just show up with purpose. He, he reveals something about himself to people. It kind of blows me away that we serve a, a God who can create everything that we see and things we don't see and things beyond our abilities, but that he still is the God who shows up to the things that he made and reveals himself. The thing he likes to reveal more than anything is his character, because nobody likes to be misunderstood. God certainly doesn't like to be misunderstood, and boy, we do a lot of misunderstanding of God. So when he shows up, he reveals his character, he reveals his glory, he reveals what he is like. He wants his people to know. He wants people to know what he's like. In the text we're going to look at tonight again, this is a, it's a theophany, and I probably am giving the whole message away, but that's all right. It's in Mark's gospel. It's in Mark's gospel, and in Mark's gospel, Jesus has already performed a whole bunch of miracles. He's healed people. He's healed lepers. He's touched somebody that was socially unclean permanently. healed them, changed their lives. Can you imagine going from being a social outcast permanently to all of a sudden being able to be involved in community, to have people receive you? Some of you I know actually do know what that's like. So in Mark's gospel, Jesus heals. He delivers people from evil spirits. He restores people. He calms an ocean, a sea actually, a big lake. Calms it. Calms a stormy sea. And in that miracle, there's a question set before us concerning Jesus. Who is this? Who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this? Because like, who does that, right? Like, who does that? Who says, Be calm! I mean, in the seas, all my kids aren't even calm when I say that. I mean, <laughs> seriously. I mean, o- occasionally they will be, but not very often. Goodness gracious, who, who is this? And Mark gives us some options throughout his gospel. He's a blasphemer. Some people think that Jesus is a blasphemer. He's forgiven sins and he's doing all this nice stuff to a bunch of messed up people. Who does that? Not doing a good job of representing God, according to some. Some people think he's a crazy, just a crazy man. Some people think he's possessed. These are some of the options Mark throws out. Blasphemer, crazy man, possessed. Or just a carpenter. He's just a carpenter. He's the son of a carpenter and he's a carpenter. He's just a carpenter. As if just a carpenter is a bad thing, right? But, I mean, when you're Jesus, he's a little more than a carpenter. But nobody wants to be labeled by their trade anyway, right? <laughs> Ollie's not just a child care worker. Patty's not just a teacher. Right? Those things don't even do a good job of identifying who we are, let alone who Jesus is. But then there's a few positive things that Mark throws out. He's a healer. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah, he's a healer. But even that, maybe that's not enough. He's a prophet. 
Yeah, okay. We're getting a little closer now, maybe, because he's certainly both of those things. But I don't think they're quite enough, according to Mark's gospel or any of the gospels, for that matter. Or maybe, maybe he's the Messiah, the Son of God. Hmm. I think we're maybe onto something with that. Maybe it's driving a little closer to home. But these are like just terms, right? I'm going to pick on Mitch for a second. Sorry. I shouldn't do this because then you're never going to want to preach again, but that's just too bad because you're going to. Yeah. Like this whole idea of things being concealed and revealed. Like sometimes we get in our own heads what that means that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and if they're not the right ideas, it ultimately conceals more than it maybe it reveals. And that certainly was true in Jesus' day. There were some expectations of a Messiah coming, the Messiah coming, but their ideas ultimately had them blind to who, who Jesus was, even as the Messiah. Even when they kind of named it and noticed it and recognized that maybe this dude is a Messiah, okay to say dude and Messiah in the same sentence? I don't know. But like, like they didn't quite get it. They needed the Messiah himself to come and reveal to everybody who he really was. Because Mark's gospel doesn't just invite us to consider who Jesus was. It also invites us to consider who as the Messiah Jesus is and what the Messiah is going to be like and what the Messiah is like, what then God is like. Mark wants us to discover not just that Jesus is the Messiah, but the way He is, the way He lives, the way He acts as Messiah. The text that we're going to look at brings us to a point in Mark's gospel right after Jesus feeds 5,000 people plus women and children. It's kind of a bummer they didn't get the women and children counted in there, right? But like, we got to figure there's probably one man plus 2.3 kids per, you know, per one, sorry, one woman per man plus 2.3 kids, something like that. So do the math, Darren. Go. Um, anyway. <laughs> 23,000. Something like that, right? That's a, that's a, that's a big number. 33,000, yeah, whatever. That's a lot of people. I mean, even if it's just 5,000 that you're feeding with just a few morsels of food, that's kind of amazing. That feeding of 5,000 is itself an intentional reference to the Israelites wandering around in the desert, grumbling, mad, angry, waiting for God to do something, and they're upset they don't have enough food to eat, and so finally God provides for them. What is it from heaven? Manna, what is it? That's literally what it means. What is it? Bread from heaven. We just call it that. right? So there's an intentional reference to something that God did in providing for a bunch of grumbling people in the wilderness. And then this story happens. Mark writes, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. Well, he dismissed the crowd. That's the 5,000 plus women and children, right? After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. 
When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. During the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He intended to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them. And the wind died down. They were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. This is a fascinating account, to say the least, of the disciples' life with Jesus. Can you wrap your mind around this happening? Like somebody walking on water? Like they might not have been scientifically minded, but they knew people couldn't walk on water. You know, it wasn't like they thought that it was possible. But I really I want to draw our attention to a couple of pieces of this story. First, notice the timing of Jesus seeing. And Jesus going. It's verses 47 and 48. He sees the disciples straining at the oars when evening came. When evening came, he sees them. And that specifically, if you're to look in the original text, is the first watch of the night. It's about dusk. It's when the sun is setting. It's the first watch throughout the evening. It would, again, be dusk to us. So he sees them straining during the first watch of the night. He saw them hurting, trying to get across. It's not a long ways. I mean, picture this. Jesus just finished feeding 5,000 people. He says to his disciples, go across the other side of the lake. It's a relatively short distance. It's a man-powered vessel with oars and people rowing. There's, there's, a lot of these guys are fishermen. They know what's going on. They know how to do this, right? It's at a max distance eight miles, but probably more like two and a half to three miles that they had to travel. And again, he during that first watch of the night, the sun's just setting. He sees them. In the light of the setting sun, he sees them struggling to get anywhere. Big burly fisherman in the puny yarn to Matthew, the tax collector. <laughs> come on, Matthew, come on, pitch in, dude. Just give me your oar. Golly, you don't know what you're doing, do you? But still, he see, so he sees them. He sees them then struggling. All of them, not just Matthew. He sees them struggling. And then we're told in verse 48 that he went out to them shortly before dawn. More specifically, he goes out to them the fourth watch of the night, the last watch of the night. So he sends them off. He dismisses the crowd. He sees them in the setting sun straining at the oars, and he goes and prays. Eh, he'll get there sometime, sooner or later. The fourth watch of the night, he goes. He goes out. So eight hours? Eight hours to make like a... A two-hour tour? I mean, like, how, how does this, how, 
I'm dating myself, right? How does... <laughs> so about eight hours trying to go two miles? And keep in mind, okay, when he goes back down, he still sees them. <laughs> They're not very far. They haven't gotten very far. They're still struggling. They're still struggling to make it anywhere. I feel like that sometimes. <laughs> right? I'm rowing hard, man. If you throw me a bone, I know you see me. Can you do something here? Oh. And, and if this eight-hour delay is not peculiar enough, like, I, oh, man, when I first saw this, I'm like, are you kidding me? How, how, is this, how is this possible, Jesus? I thought you were good to us. Like, so if that's not peculiar enough, we're also told that he finally did go down to them, that once he came close, that he literally intended to pass them by. He's just like, and he, he's just down trucking along eight hours later. Thanks a lot for that. And it seems as though he really does intend to pass them by, and that the only reason he stops and gets in the boat is that they're scared to death. They're like, ah, we see him. Because they're like Hebrew people, Jewish people in that day were just terrified of the ocean. Right? That's where, like, it was chaos. It represented chaos because, like, well, I mean, to be honest with you, if I'm in the middle of a sea someplace and I can't see land, I really don't want to be in the water all alone either. But even fishermen, they're, they're afraid. Like, this is chaos. This is where evil spirits dwell. They see this thing, this ghostly figure walking on water, and who expects to see a person walking on water? They scream out, Jesus gets in the boat. So, so what is up? What is up? with Jesus' story? Is it really right that he intended to pass them by? Is there, wh wh why would he wait like eight hours <laughs> once he sees them? I mean, is it just like, you know, hey, I'm going to save you some money at the, at the fitness center. You don't have to go anymore now. Just, you know, that rowing machine, you know? That's right. That's right. I feel like doing my best Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonation right now. Impersonation of an Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonation, right? The SNL skit, like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it, but I'm really tempted. So let's back, get back to the text here. Why? 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 What is really up with the story? What's up with the eight-hour delay? Like, was, like, was he just so in, entrenched in prayer that that's, that's where he wanted to be? He wanted some time away from everybody else? That's possible. Maybe he was taking a nap. <laughs> the alarm didn't go off. You know, I get that one all the time. Sorry, Pastor Cole, I missed the appointment with you last week because my alarm didn't go off. I'm like, okay. Maybe Jesus was, I don't know. Was he distracted? He just lost track of time? Hmm. And, and, and again, why did he intend, why does it, why does it say that he intend to pass him, intends to pass him by? By the way, it's softened in some translations because people don't know what to make of it. And sometimes they'll say he's about to pass by. But it literally is, again, he intended to pass them by. So was he angry? Yeah. We'll get to this in a second. Was he, was he angry? I think when I first read this text, I thought maybe that was it. Because he's like, immediately, get across the other side of the lake. Goodbye. You don't understand. You don't know what you're talking about. Get across. Was he disappointed with them, maybe? 
No, I think sometimes Jesus is a little disappointed with our lack of understanding. He loves us, but I don't think he's always impressed with some of the things that we say and things we do and some of the things that we think. But is that what's going on here? Was he just frustrated with his disciples? Was he disappointed with them? Was he angry with them? There's certainly something going on here. Something that I believe to be really central to the understanding of what Jesus is doing here and Mark's point. Something that if we don't see it will lead us to make honestly huge mistakes in interpretation and significance about the text. There's something in common between these two ideas of the fourth watch of the night and passing by. It's the language of theophany. It's the language of when God shows up. It's the time. The fourth watch is when, most often times, God reveals himself to people. And passing by is the way, Yahweh. The I am who I am and I will be who I will be reveals himself. Major and most often very intensely personal and formative and lasting God events happen at that time and in that way. It's during the fourth watch of the night that Jacob, Jacob as in like father of the twelve sons whose descendants became the 12 tribes of Israel, like that Jacob, kind of like the important Jacob. Sorry to you other Jacobs. That Jacob? The Jacob that God wrestles with and is blessed by God? That Jacob? He wrestles with God at the fourth watch of the night. Actually, sorry, he wrestles with him all night. God reveals who he is. That he's not just wrestling with an angel. This isn't just an angelophany. This is a theophany that happens at the fourth watch of the night. It's during the fourth watch of the night that God delivers the Hebrew people across the Red Sea. Saved from the Egyptians. And God shows up and delivers them. It's during the fourth watch of the night that Yahweh reveals his glory to Moses. And the fourth watch of the night passing by proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The fourth watch of the night, God shows up. And it is in passing by that God reveals himself. It is in passing by that God reveals himself to Elijah. In the text that we were talking, read earlier today, the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. That's how God does it. I don't know why. Well, we'll talk about maybe why. I don't know why, but that's how he does it. He passes by. He likes to pass by like early in the morning or late, late at night, however you want to look at it. It's in passing by that after an entire night of wrestling and during the fourth watch that God reveals himself to Jacob. So there you get both of them piled up. It's the fourth watch and he passes by. Jacob says, I have seen God face to face and yet my life is preserved. And the sun rose upon him when the face of God passed by. And likewise, it is both the fourth watch and in passing by that God reveals himself to Moses. 
When my glory passes by, God says to Moses, I will put you in the cleft of a rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And he passed by Moses, again proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the I am who I am, the I will be who I will be. A compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's about who Jesus is. And by the way, I don't have time to go into this, but it's only Yahweh who treads on the sea. It's only God that walks on water. So what does this tell us about Jesus' identity? The disciples' question of who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? Remember that question? Remember the options that we had thus far in Mark's gospel? He's a blasphemer. He's a crazy man. He's possessed. He's a carpenter. He's a healer. He's a prophet. Mark points away from these answers to a picture of Jesus. He paints a picture for us of Jesus walking on the water, doing what, the, what, what only the mysterious, and that's the point, I am who I am and I will be what I will be can do. And he does it in his way at the fourth watch. He does it in passing by. So he's not trying to be necessarily mean to the guys that are out there rowing for eight hours. He's certainly not just trying to pass by. He wants to reveal himself. He wants to reveal himself to his disciples. They don't get it yet. He wants them to understand. He wants them to understand about the loaves. He wants them to understand who he is. Because honestly, we struggle with it still today. How could our creator be so kind and gentle and humble and loving? There's more to this, I believe, than just Jesus' identity. As central as, as central as that is, and that's a kind of huge thing to embrace, of Jesus being God incarnate, I believe there's more to this fourth watch thing and this passing by than simple just choices of language. Right? It's not just the language of theophany, like this is for some reason how God chooses to do this thing of revealing himself. God repeatedly chooses to show up in the fourth watch. Why? He intentionally chooses to pass by instead of just sticking around. Why? Why does God wait until the fourth watch to show up and when he does, he just trucks on through? I think maybe, and it's really more something to ponder, then it is something there's just a bunch of clear, simple answers to. But maybe part of the answer lies in looking at something common between the stories. There is something in common between the people of the stories that God was revealing Himself to. Each person or group of people, there's something in common. Each of them is waited and waited and waited and waited on God, being disappointed at times, being 
frustrated at times, being angry at times, being distraught, being at their wits end, about ready to give up. Each one of these people, each one of these groups of people have been there. Jacob's life was one of waiting. Waiting for promises to be fulfilled. He's the child of promise. Come on, God, get on with it. Not waiting perfectly by any means, that's for sure. But waiting. Anticipating, still expecting something. The Hebrew people themselves waited for generations in Egypt, crying out and powerless to do anything about their situation. So they were waiting, but crying out still to a God who they hadn't given up on because you don't cry to a God who doesn't pay attention. You don't cry to a God you don't think exists. You don't cry out to a God who you don't think can do anything about your situation. Moses waited a lifetime in the wilderness. And like Jacob, Elijah's life was one also defined by waiting and waiting. All of these people waited and waited and waited. They waited for God to show up. And each of them, he did. He did show up. Finally. The fourth watch of the night. Finally, God shows up. I think it paints this picture of the God who comes through. He comes through. He's faithful, but my goodness, the waiting for him to show up is sometimes really hard. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not sure, though, that how God showed up is all that satisfactory for some of them, if we're going to be just honest about it. Or was it? I mean, maybe not satisfactory for their expectations. Maybe satisfactory once they grew into what this thing was God was up to. Because for each of them, when he does show up, he passes by, right? It's like, God, you finally came. You finally revealed your glory to me. You finally let me see you, and you just trucked through. I mean, Moses, God just shows him in the backside. And barely that, because he's holding his hand up. So he finally shows up, and they just catch a glimpse. Jacob gets to wrestle with God. My goodness, what a, that sounds scary to me. It's a good thing he, he didn't know who he was wrestling with to begin with. Jacob gets to wrestle with God, but it's only at the end that he realizes who he's wrestling with and glimpses God. But then he had to continue waiting. Only now he was blessed. He had wrestled with God. He had seen God face to face and somehow lived and God blessed him. But of course, there's a blessing that came with a cost because he walked the rest of his life with a limp. Hmm. Moses, again, he just gets to see the backside of God passing by in the wilderness. And it doesn't end his waiting either. He's changed. He now knows out of God's own mouth or whatever he speaks from, 
that he is gracious and compassionate, full of grace and truth, abounding in steadfast love. He gets to hear that about God. And though he continues going on waiting, he's changed. He's not the same guy anymore now. He really has had this revealed of God's character to him. Elijah gets nothing more than a last minute passing by. It's too small. But it's a voice that sustains him in his waiting. It's a voice that changes everything about how he understands God showing up. Where to look for God. Where to imagine God could be. How to hear God's voice. Because, again, we misunderstand God. We think he's going to show up in the big clap of a thunder.